Everyone, soon or late, comes round by Rome. That's what the English poet Robert Browning said. And if you're listening to this podcast, it seems that you might be coming around Rome a bit sooner. I'm Andrew, and I'm delighted that you'd like to connect a bit with Rome and with the first Christians. The following episodes in this podcast feed are an on-the-ground guide to various sites in Rome, explaining what you're seeing and how it intersects with the Christian story. This first episode is a bit different, and today we'll cover three things. First, we'll talk about the purpose and the format of these podcast tours. Second, you'll get a crash course on Roman history. Finally, we'll end with a brief overview of the origins of Christianity. So, what are these tours about? These episodes are not general tour guides for Rome. There are plenty of those already. What I think is missing is a series of tours that walk you through the archaeological sites of Rome from a faith-based perspective. You can find an audio tour about the Piazza Navona, one of Rome's great piazzas. And you can find abundant information on the Roman emperor Domitian. What's less common is a tour that will connect those two dots. A tour that will walk you through the Piazza Navona, that will tell you how the piazza perfectly preserves the outline of the Stadium of Domitian, and points out that Domitian seems to be quite closely connected to the biblical book of Revelation. For good or for bad, standing in the middle of the Piazza Navona today is one of the most direct ways to experience the historical world in which the book of Revelation was first written. So the focus here is on the importance of Rome for early Christianity. We're talking about the first emergence of Christianity in Rome in the 30s or 40s through about the year 400 AD. The aim is to provide some robust archaeological information, but in a way that's accessible to someone without a deep background in Roman history. And most of all, this is a series of tours that is designed to be used on the ground. Listen along on these tours and I'll walk you through what you see while you're standing at a particular spot in Rome. We've created these as video podcasts with images embedded in them. That means that depending on the device you're playing them from, you should be able to see some images on your screen that will help you make the most of what you see in real life. To lay all my cards on the table, I have some formal academic training in both classical antiquity and the history of Christianity. But I am not an archaeologist, and I don't consider myself an expert in any of this. I'm just a very interested amateur. I am also a practicing Christian, so you may get a devotional thought here and there. However, most of this podcast will focus on the literary and archaeological evidence found in the city of Rome, and that evidence will be brought to bear on early Christianity. So even if you don't consider yourself religious or spiritual, if you're interested in the history of Christianity or the history of Rome, then this series of podcast tours is for you. So how do you know where to start? Well, in Rome, anywhere is a good place to start. Really. Walk outside your hotel, throw a rock, and you will invariably hit something 2,000 years old with a fascinating history. The tours in this podcast feed are not arranged in any particular order. I would have loved to arrange them chronologically so that you could start at the beginning of Roman Christianity and move forward through time. But Rome is the largest and the most complicated archaeological site in the entire world. In some ways, that's spectacular for you as a visitor, but there are also some downsides. 
One of those downsides is that the sites in the city defy any logical ordering or any easy explanation. Take the Pantheon as an example. This is one of Rome's most celebrated and well-preserved sites. You might think that you could visit this spot to get a stunning glimpse of Rome's past, and you can. But when you visit the Pantheon, which past is it that you are seeing? The inscription on the front of the building refers to an earlier version of the Pantheon that burned it down. Nothing remains of that building, but the inscription from that first building is still there on the front of the current iteration of the Pantheon. The bulk of the building that we see today was built around 125 AD by the Emperor Hadrian, but some of what you see today are repairs performed around 202 AD by the Emperor Septimius Severus. Some of the columns in the front of the building are replacements that were installed in the 1500s AD, yet those replacement columns are themselves first century Roman columns from the palace of the Emperor Domitian. In 609 AD, the entire structure was converted into a church, and Christian additions continued for 1300 years. When you look at the Pantheon, you are, in a very real way, looking back in time, but you don't see a specific moment in the past. You see a hodgepodge of history from thousands of years. Almost all of Rome's sites are like that. They are a confusing jumble of material from wildly different historical periods and keeping it all straight in your head is a complicated task, even for professional historians. So there's no right or wrong order for these tours. Use them as you're able to make the most of your time in Rome. With that in mind, let's finish with an overview of the history of Rome and the time period that we're looking at. These are the broad strokes just enough for you to orient yourself for the basic time period that we'll be thinking about during our tours. The Romans themselves believed that their city was founded in the 8th century BC by Romulus and Remus, twins who as infants were raised by a female wolf. The two brothers founded the city, and Romulus became the first in a line of seven kings. The idea that there were once kings in Rome seems historically plausible enough, but it's hard to say for certain. According to Roman tradition, the seventh king was forced out of power and Rome became a republic, with a senate, elected magistrates, and a voting body of Roman citizens. It's in this republican period that we eventually enter into events that are historically verifiable. Rome experienced territorial expansion in the republican period, culminating in wars with the rival power of Carthage, famous battles with Hannibal and all the rest of it. After defeating Carthage, Rome came to dominate the Mediterranean world. But in the midst of this foreign policy success, there were an increasing number of domestic problems at home. Social, political, and economic conflicts threatened to tear the city of Rome apart. These struggles led to a series of destructive civil wars fought by famous names like Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and Augustus. Augustus ended the civil wars a few years before the birth of Jesus. Augustus consolidated all power in himself, and he functioned as the first emperor of Rome, but interestingly enough, he never claimed the title of emperor. Augustus kept the trappings of republican government, giving the illusion that he had actually restored the republic rather than killing it. 
Most Romans probably saw through the illusion, but they were so worn out by decades of civil war that they appreciated the stability that Augustus and his successors brought. For the next several hundred years, the men that we now call Roman emperors kept up this veneer of republican government, until around the mid-200s AD, when emperors began to flaunt their power openly and to display the autocratic style of government that we associate with emperors today. One of these autocratic emperors was a man named Constantine, who in the early 300s AD began to promote Christianity as the preferred religion of the Roman Empire. He set Europe and the Western world on a Christian path that we still grapple with today. So what about Christianity, that religion that Constantine promoted? Christianity had obscure origins hundreds of years earlier and over 2,000 miles away from Rome. Jesus, who's considered today the founder of Christianity, lived and died in Palestine as a Jew. Jesus' central message was about a movement that he called the Kingdom of God. This kingdom was a radical, countercultural space where all were loved and welcomed. Jesus viewed God as his heavenly Father. He taught his followers how to approach God, and he encouraged them to live a lifestyle characterized by peace and wholeness. Jesus was crucified by Roman authorities in Jerusalem around 33 AD. After his death, Jesus' followers became convinced that God had raised Jesus from the dead. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and they began to tell others that the path to salvation and to eternal life ran through the resurrection of Jesus. From everything that we can tell, Jesus seems to have had no intention of starting a separate religion. Yet in the years after his death, the movement that Jesus began gradually evolved into a faith that was separate from Judaism. That faith came to Rome very, very early. Jesus died around 33 AD, and in the city of Rome, there were people that we now call Christian by the 40s AD at the absolute latest. It's a remarkable geographic spread for a movement that attracted so little public attention during the life of its founder. During that beginning in the 40s AD, Christianity in Rome was a very marginal force. Its first adherents in the city were probably very poor. Most were not native Romans. Most Roman Christians were likely immigrants who spoke Greek, the language of the Eastern Mediterranean, rather than the Latin language of Rome. They met in houses or in rented spaces in warehouses and shops. Church buildings did not appear until much later. These first Christians left a few tantalizing clues behind, which we'll see during the course of our tours. But on the whole, because the first Christians seemed to have been so poor and so socially unimportant, they left very few physical traces behind. We can make some guesses about these earliest Christians based on literary sources, but these earliest Roman churches remain a bit mysterious. But soon, the churches of Rome acquired increasing numbers of converts from an increasing number of social classes. For example, by 98 AD, it seems likely that the life of one Roman senator, at least, was a Christian. By the 180s, Christians could even be found among the slaves and the freedmen in the household of the Emperor Commodus. Christians grew in numbers and influence despite various degrees of social opposition until Constantine made Christianity a permissible religion of the empire in the year 313.
Since Christianity and Rome is the subject of these tours, we'll get into much more detail about those early Christians and subsequent episodes. But the last thing I want to make clear now is the organization of the early Roman church. If you think about Rome and about Christianity today, you probably think about the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. While the Catholic Church has been a tremendous force in history, and it still shapes the lives of millions of the faithful, we need to put those concepts out of our minds for the period that we're discussing. Early Christianity was a fragmented and divided movement. While there was a large stream of thought that, in hindsight, we recognize as normal or orthodox Christianity, the reality was that the early Christians came in all sorts of flavors. The first Christians used different books as scripture, they believed different things about God and Jesus, and they practiced their faith in very different ways. Two examples illustrate how the early Roman churches differed from our modern ones. First, in the year 135, a Christian named Justin was tried in Rome and eventually martyred for his faith. During the trial, Justin claimed before the judge that he did not know of any other Christian meetings in the city other than his own. Now, assuming that Justin told the truth, that shows how splintered the early Christian movement was. One group of Christians in Rome was so isolated that they didn't even realize that other Christian congregations existed in the city. A second example comes later, in the year 325. By that time, there had developed some top-down hierarchical control of churches. There was an organized system of priests and bishops to shepherd the church. And in the year 325, churches were fighting over theology and disputing about which doctrines were true. But it was not a church leader who called a meeting to settle the argument. It was a leader from the secular government. The Roman Emperor Constantine summoned all the priests and all the bishops to a meeting, and Constantine ordered them to work it out. If a church leader had tried to call a meeting to settle a theological dispute, no one would have come. There was no figure in the church that had the power and authority to do that. Only the Roman emperor had that kind of power. The secular government was much more important than the church government. You may have in your mind the idea that the Roman church had tremendous power to control society in the past. That became true at some points during the medieval period, but it was never true in the period that we are covering in these tours. That wraps up our crash course on Rome and early Christianity. Beginning with the next episodes, we'll walk through the sites around the city of Rome. There's no right or wrong order for these tours, so pick whichever ones are most relevant for you and your itinerary. That's all for now. Gavin Spell is our audio engineer for these tours, and he also performs our music. If you have feedback about these tours, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at andrew at andrewgarnett.org. That's A-N-D-R-E-W at A-N-D-R-E-W-G-A-R-N-E-T-T dot org. I hope that we meet again soon, and for both of our sakes, when we do, I hope that we're standing in the streets of the Eternal City. Mm -hmm.